Good morning. My name is Peter Witt. I'm doing the reading today. The first reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 17. For those with the Church Bible, that's on page 981. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the Emperor. The second reading comes from Daniel 1, 1 1-6, which is page 719 of the Church Bibles. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put put in the treasures (coughs) house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen with some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Well, friends, uh, good morning again. If you could turn back to uh, 1 Peter, that's where we're going to be uh, starting, uh, and then in the second half of the sermon we'll be flicking back over to Daniel. So you might want to put your finger uh, in there somewhere. Uh, so 1 Peter 2, if you could leave that open. According to data from the Human Rights Commission, uh, in 2002, support for same-sex marriage in Australia was 38% for, 44% of people were opposed, and 18% of people were undecided. What that means is that 15 years ago, uh, most Australians believed it to be right to defend the classical view of marriage. It's remarkable what can happen in a little over 10 years. Now, the most recent data we have on this is from 2014, two years ago, and in the 12 years between 2002 and 2014, 
the percentage of people who support same-sex marriage doubled to 72%. The percentage who opposed more than halved to 21%. And now, only 7% of people are undecided. Brothers and sisters, what is clear is that those who support traditional marriage, which includes those who hold a biblical view of marriage, are now absolutely out of step with the broader Australian community. You will have noticed in the last few years an increase in the visibility of same-sex relationships on our screens, uh, and not just in cutting-edge American television shows such as Orange is the New Black, but uh, also in reality TV shows uh, showing more same-sex relationships, such as SBS's show in 2014, Living with the Enemy, uh, or Channel 9's show this year, Married at First Sight. Uh, Even children's television shows such as Play School, now celebrating its 50th year, is showing more relationships such as this. So in a story on the ABC website entitled Play School to Showcase Diverse Family Structures in 50th Year, uh, we read the following. The ABC's Play School is to feature a segment involving a child with two dads. Play School says it's looking to broaden young minds by featuring more diverse family structures. Friends, what all that means is that we can no longer merely assume that our society's attitudes towards marriage and family merely run parallel with our own. Even with the TV shows that you might have previously allowed your children to watch without thinking too much about it. But the fact is, it actually goes a step further than than this. There has been a progression of thought in Australian society when it comes to to the traditional and biblical view of sexuality, marriage and relationships. You see, for most of Australia's history, a biblical worldview of sexuality has been seen as both mainstream and desirable. And then, uh, we saw this last week, but with the invention of successful reproductive technologies, the introduction of no-fault divorce, as well as the ever-increasing sexualisation of our culture, the traditional and biblical view of sexuality and marriage has been seen more and more as odd, restrictive, old-fashioned, and certainly religious. Now, maybe that's where you think our culture is right now. I don't. I think our culture continues to move. You see, there is now a developing perspective by many that the traditional and biblical view of sexuality and relationships are not merely odd, restrictive, old-fashioned and religious. More than that, they are dangerous. They have great potential to harm. Take, for instance, this press release from the Greens from May 2015. The title, Scripture Books Promote Dangerous Messages on Sex, Sexuality and Gender. Now, just to be clear, the books it's referring to are the very same books that we were selling two weeks ago here by Dr. Patricia Werrikoon. Okay, they're the books. Here's what Dr. John Kay says. He was the New South Wales Upper House Greens member who sadly died last year. But this is what he said in the press release. This is dangerous stuff. Abstinence messaging and homophobia have real consequences for vulnerable young people Yet Education Minister Adrian Pickley is allowing parents to be lulled into a false sense of security around Scripture. In the absence of either departmental scrutiny or full disclosure to parents, Scripture providers are getting away with messaging that causes untold harm. 
Now, please just note what's being said here. It's being said, firstly, that homophobia is dangerous. And we would entirely agree. There's certainly room to debate Dr. Kay's definition of homophobia, but we would certainly agree, wouldn't we, that homophobia, rightly understood, is dangerous and harmful. You need to know that the suicide rate for young men who identify as homosexual is four times greater than the general population. But notice what else is smuggled in here. Abstinence messaging has real consequences for vulnerable young people. Messages that cause untold harm. Brothers and sisters, don't miss that. That is a shift going on before your eyes. You see, we have always believed, and many in our culture, most in our culture have agreed, that sexual promiscuity was dangerous. That hooking up, picking up, was not only immoral, but it put people at risk as they played around with sexually intimate relationships in a way counter to their design. Uh, There were inherent risks, not merely with disease, but our broader community understood that with a future stability of desired permanent relationships. But now we're being told the opposite. What is dangerous is not sleeping around, but not sleeping around. You get that? In a blog piece titled Sexual Abstinence, The New Immorality, (laughs) Steve McAlpin, a minister based in Perth, wrote this. A big chill will descend upon any public assertion of traditional Christian ethics. Christian morality is going to be viewed as immorality as a new morality takes its place. In this world of the new morality, life is going to become increasingly uncomfortable for traditional Christians who hold to and teach a Christian framework, especially in the area of sexual ethics. Well, my brothers and sisters and friends and guests, keeping that extended introduction in mind, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to consider three things. Number one, how on earth are God's people meant to live in this world? Number two, what is life going to be like for God's people in this world? Number three, why it's not all bad news. Well, let's turn to the Bible uh, as we consider our first question. How on earth? <laughs> how on earth are God's people to live in this sort of world? You know, the passage we, uh, we heard read first was uh, uh, from a letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to churches that were spread across Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey. He wrote in the year 62 AD, just before very significant persecution was going to fall upon the Christian church at the hands of Emperor Nero. But these churches were already undergoing significant persecution. Then in chapter 2, verse 11, if you can see that in front of you, we see this great little verse. Dear friends, says Peter, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So Peter here is writing to Christians, people who are feeling dislocated from the community and society in which they live, and he calls them foreigners and exiles. Or for those of you who prefer the old NIV, and I do on this, aliens and strangers. Now, just to be clear, just to be clear on this, while some of the people he's writing to would have indeed have been foreign to the areas they were living in, they wouldn't have been locals, uh, he's right to call them foreigners and exiles, but many of the people Peter writes to here in the churches would have been locals. It's weird, right? They would have been born and raised in the cities that they now lived, but Peter still calls them foreigners and exiles, aliens and strangers. 
Have you ever considered why? It is because Peter is making the point here that God's people are to live in this world like they do not belong. Christians are to live in this world knowing that they are out of step with much of what the culture values and holds as good. Christians know they are made for another place. You see, Jesus' people are made to be with Jesus. And because we're aliens and strangers, foreigners and exiles, Peter says, I urge you, actually it's stronger than that in the original, he says, I greatly urge you to keep away from, it's actually stronger than that in the original, to continually keep away from sinful desires that war against your soul. Peter says, I greatly urge you, brothers and sisters, to continually keep away from the desires of the flesh that will wage war against who you are. Brothers and sisters, my fellow aliens and strangers, we are made to be with Jesus. Heaven is our home. That means that we are out of step, out of place, and out of character with this place. Perhaps you've never known that before, perhaps... You've never felt like that before. Can I say, in regards to this new sexuality developing around us, you just might, for the first time, start to feel it. But don't miss Peter's warning here. Watch out. This new sexuality may just well raise temptations within you that will wage war against your soul. It may be a temptation to sin sexually in new and newly culturally acceptable ways. Perhaps it might be a sinful desire to simply go along with what our culture has decreed is normal and right. How are God's people to live in this sort of world? Knowing we are made for another place. Our second question is this. What is life going to look like in this sort of world? We we know our culture is changing, don't we? We know that our God and his word does not. What's life going to look like as we live in this world? You know, whenever you ask these sort of questions, you start to put yourself up as a bit of a prophet. Well, here's what the future says. Here's what the future looks like. Uh, I need to say, uh, and I probably don't need to say, but I am no prophet. uh, And so we're not going to look forward to find out. We're going to look back. We're going to see a couple of different times in the Bible where God's people lived in and engaged in the societies in which they lived. We're going to look at two cities. The first city we're going to look at and consider, it'll all be on the screen, is Athens. Still around, still a great city, but no longer the cultural and philosophical world centre it was in the first century. And in Acts 17, we read that the Apostle Paul arrives in Athens and is greatly distressed as he sees a city full of idols. You might know this. So Paul has his heart broken by a city that does not know Jesus. Sounds like Sydney so far. And so he looks for opportunities to share Jesus with people. He ends up at the Areopagus, a court which oversaw matters of religion and morality. And Paul finds himself presenting the gospel before these learned philosophers. This is what we read. Then they took Paul and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this teacher, this new teaching is that you're presenting? 
You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. So Paul shares the gospel to what would have to be described as a mixed reception from his audience. So we read this in verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this. Now it seems to me that as we think about where we sit as God's people in society right now, it's very easy to think that we're in Athens in a sense. We're in the marketplace of ideas, aren't we? You've got the Stoics over here and the Epicureans up the back there. We've got the atheists over here and we've got those people presenting a new fluid sexuality just here. And we're all equal and we all have our perspectives. This is a secular democracy after all. And some sneer, don't they, when they hear about the resurrection of the dead, and yet others say, look, we'd love to hear you a bit more on this. Are we in Athens? There is a growing thought among some Christian culture watchers and theologians that Sydney is like an ancient city, but we're not in Athens anymore. We're moving on. And we're fast heading towards Babylon. Babylon. Remember that city? Babylon's first mentioned back in the Bible in Genesis 10. And it's not until the book of 1 Kings that we really get to know Babylon. And we find out that it's actually another world centre. But it's a world centre. It's a world city that in the Old Testament comes to be known as everything that stands against God. That's Babylon. It is the city that stands against God. If Jerusalem is the city of God, Babylon is not. Can you turn to page 719 of your pew Bibles? Daniel 1. 719. So, in the book of Daniel, chapter 1, verse 1, we read this ominous verse for what's to come. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of uh, Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. What do we have? We have the city of God being sacked by Babylon. Now, what often happened when an ancient superpower took over a neighbouring state and was determined to crush its culture would be that the lowest classes of people who were essentially harmless would be intermingled with the foreign and invading population. They'd be gone within a generation. The middle and upper class, including military and judiciary, would be slaughtered and the elite would be taken away and repopulated in the superpower's centre. You see, the elite were useful. Now, there were variations on all of this, of course, but this is essentially how it worked in the ancient Near East and it was brutally effective, brutally effective at wiping out a culture. This is the background of Daniel. Babylon overthrows Jerusalem and in chapter 1 we read about the beginning of the resettling of the elite, followed from verse 1. Then the king ordered Aspenaz chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites, from where? From the royal family and the nobility, the elite, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. So, say with me, the king of Babylon has these Jewish exiles now, these people who are out of their land. And in chapter 1 of Daniel, we see four ways Four ways that the Babylonian Empire sought to bring the Jewish exiles into line with their pagan ways. We're going to look at three of them now in Daniel 1. Okay? The first is isolation. Isolation. So the first step in turning someone into a Babylonian is to get them into Babylon, pull them out of Jerusalem, 
take them away from homeland, family and friends. Once they are vulnerable, disoriented and separated, that is the time to start retraining them. It's worth noting, it's not being in exile that harms them. It's not being with God's people. There was a family that attended a church that I once worked at. And their daughter was in our youth ministry. She was a great girl. She was a member of our night church. And she just finished year 12 and was heading off to Perth by herself to study acting at a well-known performing arts academy. We had great concerns for this girl. Moving away from family, friends, church, and moving into a new culture of open and expressive liberal sexuality. We shared our concerns with the family and with the daughter, our grave concerns. The girl went, no longer follows Jesus as her saviour. You know, it's not being in exile that harms people. It's not being with God's people. That's isolation. Second thing we see in verses 4 and 5, and it's indoctrination. Isolation, then indoctrination. Look at verse 4. We see that they take these young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. So the strategy was, take these sharp men, enrol them in an educational school for three years, and they would become experts in Babylonian language and literature. I don't need to tell you that it is language and literature that carries a culture. You know that. This was to be the way these men would become Babylonian. You know, it's interesting to see what is happening uh, in schools in Australia at the moment with the Safe School Program. If you're not sure what Safe Schools is, it is a program that's being rolled out in Australian government schools which claims to be about bullying and creating safe educational spaces. However, many people have expressed concerns that it's really only concerned with one type of bullying, that of LGBTI students, and that there is also an agenda built within the program to challenge what they are calling heteronormative relationships. That's a man and a woman being together. Uh, Set to become compulsory in Victorian schools in 2018, so far in New South Wales, 427 schools have signed up. As far as I know, there is no stated claim yet to make this compulsory for New South Wales. Just listen to how the state school, uh, the Safe Schools Starter Kit, which is written for teachers, for educators, describes the aims of the program. It's on the screen. Plan to teach about sex attracted and, uh, sorry, plan to teach about same sex attracted and intersex and gender diverse peoples, histories and events. Whatever the subject, try to work out ways to integrate gender diversity and sexuality, uh, sexuality diversity across your curriculum. Principal of Scotch College, who I don't believe is a Christian, in Adelaide, that's a school like Knox here in Sydney, uh, has adopted the program, but he's quoted in the Australian newspaper saying he does not approve of the lesson plan requiring children to imagine themselves in same-sex relationships. Quote, he says, it feels like a ham-fisted attempt to change a culture. So this is part of a lesson plan that you can find online. This is put out by Safe Schools. I found it. I didn't spend much time there, but here's one I found. This is a lesson plan for 11 
12 and 13-year-olds. This is a sheet you can print off to get, have them fill out in class. Let me just point out a couple of things. I know you can't read most of it. What it says here is sexual identity, and that's who you love, like, and hook up with. There are lots of different components that make up your sexuality. You can be attracted to a whole spectrum of masculinity, femininity, both or none. Your feelings, behaviours and identity aren't always the same. Then they ask you to jot down their feelings, who you like, more female or male. Behaviours, which are different to your feelings, who do you actually be sexually intimate with, males or females. Just notice three things that run through this document. Promiscuity as normal. Same-sex attraction as normal. Fluidity of sexuality as normal. This is not a hidden document, just Google it. What's life going to be like in Babylon? It is coming to a school near you. There will be an attempt to retrain and reshape our children's minds in the way they think about marriage, sexuality, promiscuity, gender and identity. Indoctrination. Friends, the third step to becoming a Babylonian was assimilation. We see this in verse 5 of Daniel 1. See that? The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. So having learned the language and literature, they would then sit with the leadership of the land and eat and drink from their table. Not only would their minds be changed, but their behaviours also. They would become enculturated into Babylon and soon the delicacies and the privileges of this new city would wash away memories of the old. Depressing, isn't it? But here's the thing. In the case of Daniel and his three colleagues, it didn't work. It didn't work. So we read in Daniel 6, even after all the training, indoctrination and fine food, even though he has risen to the second highest position in the land, the right hand of the king, he is still an alien, a stranger, a foreigner, an exile. He's in the land, but he knows he's not of the land. Now, how has that come to pass? Friends, we see it in Daniel 6, not Daniel 1. Let me just tell you how it works in Daniel 6. What happens there? A rule is passed in the land that says if anyone prays to anyone but the king for the next month, 30 days, they'll be murdered. And Daniel wants to obey every law in the land until the law requires him to sin. So we read in Daniel 6, verse 10 on the screen. Now when Daniel learned that the decrees had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. You've got to love that verse. Public, unafraid, business as usual, God-honouring behaviour and worship. Daniel will honour authorities over him to a point, but he will never sin against his God. If you know your Bibles, you know the story. Daniel and the lions, Dan, it doesn't go well for him. He's chucked in with the lions. But you know what happens then, right? Of course, the point of the story is that God always takes care of his people. Brothers and sisters, Athens might be morphing into Babylon, but God has not changed. 
And he continues to call his people to rest and trust in him. You've got to know it's not all bad news. In fact, far from it. It's worth pointing out that as Christians, we have had it so good for so long. Do you know that no Christian in the history of the world, in any location in the world, has ever had it so easy to love Jesus, speak of him, and meet freely as his people, as us? No one. (laughs) Now, this has been put better than I can uh, in a book called Think It Not Strange uh, by David Matthias. This is what he says. Uh, I'll just read to you. Listen to this. Uh, in an American context, the days of gospel prosec- uh, sorry, the days of gospel persecution in the United States no longer just hang on the distant horizon. They are already here, at least for some. It's beginning with bakers, florists, and photographers. Before long, the consensus may be that faithful biblical exposition is hate speech. For 350 years, the church on American soil has enjoyed relatively little affection for her fidelity to the scriptures. This nation, though, is an anomaly in church history. And those days are passing more quickly than any of us expected. One of the most basic beliefs and morals of Christianity, sorry, once the most basic beliefs and morals of Christianity were taken for granted, not only in the church, but in society at large. Now many of our most deeply held, once uncontroversial claims are under full assault within and without. Barring some change in trajectory, it will only be a matter of time before some of our leaders find themselves in custody. Do not panic. For 2,000 years, this has been what it has meant to identify with Christ in the world. The normal experience of those who follow a man who was crucified. Let me conclude. Brothers and sisters, I am no prophet. But the Bible seems to suggest that these are the days we are heading into. And as much as our culture is forcing us to step out of alignment with it, Be aware that our culture is also forcing us to step into alignment with almost every Christian who has ever lived on the face of the planet. I want to finish this sermon series by calling you and me, calling all of us as a church to four things. Here's the first. The church of Jesus Christ has been through significant social upheaval many, many times. And because God's church belongs to Jesus, she always comes through. This current upheaval will just give us more opportunities to speak about Jesus because you and me, we are going to be more and more different. My brothers and sisters, will you speak up graciously, humbly, Gently, yet clearly, will you speak up for Jesus Christ, the Lord and Saviour of this world?
Will you take hold of the opportunities that will afford, that this will afford us to share the love of Jesus Christ with a world that does not know its right hand from its left? Secondly, we are going to see with new clarity the cost of conviction. We will soon see which churches and denominations are truly rooted in the authority of God's word, no matter what way the wind blows. We're going to even see it within our own church. Christians in our community will continue to lose clout, cultural clout and respectability. That's okay. We're going to continue to pay a personal and social cost for what we believe. Will you gladly wear that for Jesus? Will you allow your name to be sullied? that Jesus' name might be glorified. You know, one of the main drivers of the growth of the early church was that membership actually cost something. (laughs) So expect God to continue to bring more real Jesus-honouring growth to his churches that preach the gospel with both boldness and grace. Thirdly, The look of Jesus' church is going to change in some ways. I know of a situation in an Anglican church in Sydney right now where a man who had been married to his wife for 20 years, the man, the husband, has now had surgery to become a woman. His wife met up with the minister and said, I know that I promised for better or worse, but I didn't think he'd make me a lesbian. They both still still go to that church together. That could happen here. How are you going to cope with that? Or imagine that in 10 years, uh, a couple turn up here, uh, married, both men, with three children. One of them or both of them has wonderfully found the Lord Jesus Christ. How will you cope with that? Will you pour out grace upon grace? to people who do not look like you on the surface, but who, just like you, are wrestling with what it looks like to serve Jesus as Lord. Finally, and I'll finish on this, I want to call you to trust in God. You know, I didn't actually tell you what happens in the end of Daniel 6. Let me do that now. So the, Daniel, uh, the lions leave Daniel alone at God's instigation and then the king says this. It's on the screen. Listen to what the king says, the pagan king. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders. He has rescued Daniel from the power of of the lions. See what's happening there? God will use such trials and persecutions of his people to even bring those who do not know him to him. God knows exactly what he's doing. Trust him. I didn't tell you how 1 Peter 2 finished either. Let me read to you. It's on the screen. Live such good lives among the pagans, you aliens and strangers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Do you hear that? 
as we live as exiles, foreigners, alien strangers, in this place that is not our home, God will use even that witness to bring those who do not know him to know him. You see, there is this beautiful evangelistic impulse that flows out from holy, godly, counter-cultural living. And we're in for a remarkable time in history, friends. We're going to see God work in ways that we have not seen as yet. Praise God. Let's pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, we feel our minds are so full we're not sure how we hold all this together. We love you. We love your word. We want to be generous and gracious. And yet we also want to be holy as well, set apart for you. But in three weeks we've only scratched the surface of an issue that is going to be more and more in our culture, in our face and in our church. Give us grace, Father. Grace to love all who you call to yourself. Mercy upon mercy with those struggling in sin, just like us. And boldness to put before all people the better way to live. The way to live for Jesus and his kingdom and his glory. Make us this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.